Welcome to Cards Chat, the friendliest poker podcast in town from the world's number one poker community. Hey everyone, I am your host, Robbie Straczynski. Thank you so much for joining us on episode number 73 of Cards Chat, the friendliest poker podcast in town. Today's guest is a prominent veteran member of the poker community who in recent years has become somewhat of a poker celebrity from his appearances in the chainsaw corner of Daniel Negreanu's WSOP vlogs. But who is the man behind the character? Why does he obsess so much about tournament structures? Did you know that he's got close to 400 tournament caches and almost $4 million in career winnings? It's time to get to know Alan Kessler a little better. Alan, welcome to the Cards Chat Podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for making the time. Uh, Alan, you know, you've been a staple in the poker community for a long time, but I think most of us, including even your big fans, we only kind of know you on a superficial level. So, you know, you've been playing this game for ages. Can you tell us how you first caught the poker bug? Um, well, I was uh, in... Uh, in high school, I played a little bit, but then in college, there was a group of us that would we, we would meet on our, we called it the Monday night game. We would watch Monday night football and play mixed games. We didn't play like normal mixed games. It was always high-low, but it was like uh, L-flop, for example, like you'd have an L-shaped flop, or you'd have um, seven cards, stud, uh, replace one card at the, on the river, things like that. And then you had to, de- you had to declare with a coin in your hand, either high was one coin, low was no coins, or two coins was both. So you could actually have nothing, but if you're the only one that declared low, you'd win half the pot. It was kind of confusing. But uh, anyway, I played that game for, we used to meet every Monday night. It wasn't that big of a stakes. You could win, a, uh, win or lose a couple hundred dollars. And then the casinos opened in Atlantic City. I think that was probably around... Uh, when they started having poker, you can look it up. I think it was around 1990 or so. Right. Anyway, I started I started going there on the weekends after my work because I actually had a job then. What and, did you do? Uh, I would play. I was a market research analyst. Uh-huh. So I would work Monday through Friday. I would go to the casinos fr- Friday night, Saturday, and Sunday. And then I would drive back to work on Monday. This That exact pattern happened for over 10 years. Wow. Wait, so one second. So, you know, you went, you said you were playing, you were in college. So what did you study? You know, what did you think your career was going to be? Oh, well, I I was always interested in, uh, in numbers and, and business management. So I, and marketing. So I had a dual major in marketing and management. Uh And then I got a job as a market research interviewer, uh, paid like $4 an hour. (laughs) I was in college and, um, the whole market research thing intrigued me, and then uh, what happened was I was really good at that, and they made me like a supervisor where I would teach people how to do it, and also listen with the, uh, they had like clients that would come in and listen to make sure that the uh, interviews were being conducted properly. Mm-hmm. So I was with the client, and I was only maybe like 19 or 20 years old, and I'm sitting with clients from like Procter & Gamble and Showtime and whatever. Wow. And uh, making sure that these interviewers are doing it right. So anyway, I did that for a while. And when I finally graduated uh, from college, they said, you know, you have um, you have a really good aptitude for numbers. Why don't we put you in our data processing department? So 
I said, sure, I've never done that, but I'll try it anyway. I was phenomenal at that, obviously, mm-hmm. because of my, I was you know, really good with numbers. And uh, I eventually got, uh, moved up through that department, and I was doing like programming for the survey. So like, you know how the interviewer would see like the questions come up on the screen? Right. I would do the, I would do the programming to make sure that they got the right questions. Like if somebody said no, they would go to this question. If someone said yes, they would do this question. And then I would also do the analysis at the end where how many people said yes, how many were males, how many were females, et cetera, et cetera. Interesting. So I did that for, I did that for a few years. And then, uh, one day I was at my friend's house watching the football game and we just decided we'd look and look at the, uh, at the one ads just to see what, you know, what, what was going on. And there was this position offered in media PA, which is like, you know, an hour from my house, but, uh, uh, I had a weird feeling about it, so I decided to apply for it, and uh, I went to this place, and it was a brand new company. They were just starting out, and, uh, oh, are you still there? I'm here with you. Yeah, go ahead. I got a weird message on my phone. Anyway, they were just starting out, and uh, they offered me, like, double the salary I was making, and I said, fine, uh, I'll go there. They had to teach me a brand new software, and... Uh, I bought a house in that area. The whole, uh, it, it was really interesting. And uh, I really got into this uh, data, the actual survey part of it more than the data processing part of it. So, so one second, before you continue, you say it was about an hour from where you had been. Where were you living, in New York beforehand? No, I was living in the, in the suburbs of Philadelphia in Montgomery County. Uh-huh. And this place was in Delaware County, which was a, a much, so I actually wound up buying a house that was in between both places. Uh-huh. And, so, and, you, and you grew up in, in that area? Yeah, I grew up in, in Montgomery County, but I eventually moved to Delaware County. And this particular job I did very well at, and they made me a supervisor of an entire department. And this was the first time this had ever been done, is they would do a weekly survey of a 1,000 people, and they would sell different people sections of the survey but they would all share the data, the, uh, the demographics. So this had never been attempted before, but this was a brand new technology where, like say you wanted to have three or four questions asked, it would cost you a fortune to do this survey, right? right. But with this program, which was called an omnibus research, everybody shared the, the demographics and you could just buy one or two questions. It was never done before. Huh. So at the end of a given week, we might have eight or nine different clients that bought into this survey and we would send them all the results. So I was the manager of this department. I had maybe 15 employees at the biggest point of this thing. We were doing two of these a week. Do you feel so like that's, that's, do you feel like perhaps some of the skills that you honed, you know, during that sort of job helped you when you were playing poker on the weekends? Yeah, I did a little bit because uh, you know you, you think about numbers and odds and things like that, and uh, you know it was such a convenient thing because. Uh, I would leave work on a Friday night and the casinos were copying me because I was back then the, the, the games at the casinos were unbelievable. Like you could, you could, uh, you could walk into any casino in Atlantic city and they had games that paid a hundred percent or more video poker, which impossible to find now. But back then you could find that. And it was literally in each casino in Atlantic city at one point when I was going there, this was years ago, obviously, but they don't, obviously nobody has that anymore. And they had, you know, different contests and promotions. And I really got into that. So 
I did that for for probably uh, that whole scenario between 10 and 15 years. And eventually uh, there was this promotion where they were paying double jackpots. And uh, it was like the, the thing, the, something went off in my mind that like, this is impossible. How can the casino afford to do this? <laughs> but they were playing double jackpots between midnight and 6 a.m. So one weekend I go down like, I'm, like I normally do, and uh, I start playing, and uh, I, wound up doing, I wound up calling out of work for 11 days straight. Oh, because wow. this thing was so profitable, and it, it, I, I, never saw, I never had found anything like that, seen anything like that in my life before. And there was, you know, this whole revelation to me, like, wow, I've just made this ridiculous amount of money, more than I could make in like two years of my salary. Hmm. And I was also playing poker at the time, 100, 200 mix. Wow. Which was uh, stud high low and Omaha eight or better. And you I, weren't just playing against any, you know, Johnny come lately's. You're playing against Phil Ivey, Cindy Violet, you know, John Hennigan. Yes, all those people, John Hennigan, Nick Frangos, which I don't know if he even plays anymore. But this was a 100, 200 mix game. It, when I first started going, it was like 20, 40 Omaha high limit, which that game kind of died out because it was a very boring game, like the nuts flush would win or the nuts straight would win every time. But then somehow the, the Omaha high game at the, at the Taj Mahal, it became 20-40 Omaha high-low. And then it went to 50-100, and eventually it got to 100-200. So at this 100-200, uh, all of a sudden, uh, one, a couple times people wanted to play stud eight, and they were starting another game. So eventually the two games merged, and we started playing Stud 8, Omaha 8. This was around uh, maybe late 90s. And I'm playing 100-200 mix, but I'm, I'm making, you know, I don't know, $10, $15 an hour at my job. The whole thing was, didn't really correlate. Do you know what I'm saying? Right. So I, I would leave the work, and I had a, a phenomenal job. I mean, I'm, I'm a manager of, of all these people making like 50,000 a year, but the whole time I'm at work, I'm thinking, wow, you know, I can win or lose in one pot what I'm making in like in a, in a couple of weeks or a month, whatever. Right. So eventually, you know, eventually it, it got to me. And uh, one week I just walked up to the president. I've been working there over 10 years. And I said, you know, I decided I'm going to resign. You know, I'll, I'll take a few, a uh, few weeks to train someone else on all the things that I do. And uh, I, I'm going to I'm going to resign. I, I, at that point, my sister, who uh, who's a super genius, she had started her own telephone company, and she uh, she asked me if I wanted to work for her part time, along with my uh, other stuff. So I wound up working for her during the week part time, and then still doing my uh, casino stuff on the weekends. Uh huh. So uh, she was doing uh, stuff. She was. Uh, involved with uh, toll-free numbers, oh, wow. and she was, she was, she figured out. She was one of the first people to figure out that if a number spells something, it's way better than if it doesn't spell something, like right. eight hundred flat. <laughs> For sure. So she was marketing these different telephone numbers, and uh, I would basically look for numbers that spell things. It was a very complicated thing, but she was the only one in the industry doing it at that point. And eventually. Everybody caught on, and then there was 888 and 877 and all these other exchanges. Sure. But she was the original person 
800-888. Those are the two biggest ones. And she was the original person to figure this out. And just, uh, she became a multimillionaire. But people think that, that she gave me money or that, that she like bankrolled my poker. And that's farthest from the truth. I never received $1 from her, from my parents, from anybody. Every dollar that I have, I've either earned from poker or from gambling in casinos or I used to bank my entire check for almost 15 years. Hmm. So that much accumulated quite a bit because I, I didn't have any expenses. For sure. You know, so so one second. So, so when you left work to officially do this, you were thinking, I'm going to be a poker pro or I'm going to be a professional gambler? It was a kind of a combination. What happened was uh, I was uh, I was um, playing a lot at different properties and then I won a trip to Las Vegas. This is a, like close to around uh, 2000, maybe 1998 or so. Mm -hmm. and the Las Vegas thing was just so, so intriguing to me. You could walk from casino to casino. They all had these amazing contests and I started going I started flying instead of going to Atlantic City every week. I would fly to Vegas on the weekends and come back like it would be like Thursday to Tuesday or Friday to whatever, you know, to play in these different contests that they had. They had like baccarat tournaments and blackjack tournaments. I wasn't into poker at all, except for Omaha High Low. They had some, you know, some uh, tournaments once in a while. So I was doing this back and forth. And I accumulated like a massive number of miles. Like people couldn't believe I'm going back and forth to Las Vegas like two or three times a month. And eventually I did this for a while, either flipping between Atlantic City and Las Vegas. But eventually uh, I got the poker bug around. Like I went out for some World Series events in like 2001. And you, you can look on my uh, on my Hendon mob. I think one, there was one time where I flew out in the morning, like 10 o'clock in the morning, and I got to Las Vegas, and I went right into a $5,000 Omaha 8 event, having never played an Omaha 8 event in my life. And uh, I, I cashed, and I think either uh, Scotty Wynn or, or uh, Phil Ivey won that event, but I, you know, I went really deep in a $5,000 Omaha 8 event, and then I started playing other events, like I... Uh, I saw the Chris Moneymaker thing. I said, well, I'll play a satellite for the main event. So I did that in like, I think it was like 2004 and I want to see into the main event. Okay. So, so one second, Let, let's stop you right there. Cause we're, we're fast forwarding. I, I want to ask you a couple yeah. questions about those early years though. You know, you yeah. had played cash games obviously against, you know, Phil Ivey against John Hennigan, you know, what did you learn from them? And did you kind of realize at that point, Hey, these folks are, you know, the best in the world or, you know, or just the people who happened to be sitting across from you at a table. No, I knew they were all really good players. Uh, but when I when I got to Las Vegas for this, uh, I just basically on no sleep. I like I left my house at like six a.m. I got there, <laughs> I played. I, I forget how many days it was. I, the whole thing is like a blur to me at this point. But I, I went really deep. I cashed in a five thousand dollar Omaha Eight event, and it was literally my first Omaha Eight event I'd ever played. Wow. And that is your first cash, actually. I checked on your Hendon Mob. It's in May 2001. And you've got yeah. cl close to 400 career caches. It's eighth all time. Um, you know, $4 million almost in career winnings. But you had talked before about how you were playing cash games. At what point did you kind of decide to make the switch from being a cash game player to uh, a tournament player? All right. So 
I was going out to Vegas quite a bit for these uh, these different blackjack and and baccarat tournaments and things. And at that point, the world the World Poker Tour took off, and they were offering events like almost every month, like every couple of weeks. They had one at Mirage. They had one at Mandalay Bay. They had five different series at Bellagio, and the the series at Bellagio weren't weren't like they have now. They they were complete series. They had all different mixed games, and you, you could you could stay like so. I would go out, and around 2004, 2005, this was you would you would finish one event, and there would be another event starting, and then there were another one, and another one, and uh, eventually that led into the World Series. Mm-hmm. So around that around that time, I'd say around 2004 or 2005. It just all connected, and I told my sister, you know, I'm I'm going to stay out here. I'm going to buy a house. Mm-hmm. And I one time I went out to Las Vegas. I think it was either 2004, or 2005 in that area. And I called my sister on the phone. I said, I'm going to come back. I'm going to get a moving truck. I'm going to move my some stuff out to Vegas. I'm going to buy a house out here. Hmm. And I've lived there ever since. Wow, that's really cool. So so once that, that when, when it all it all connected like you. Uh, it, it was nothing like it is today. Like the wind had the wind hadn't even been built yet. Sure. The uh, the Venetian didn't offer tournaments like they do now. Mm-hmm. But it was basically all the MGM properties were doing WPT events, and then it all connected into the World Series. Right. And if you look if you look at my uh, my Hendon Mob around like two thousand four two thousand and five, I start playing like a uh, a regular series like a regular schedule and just. It just mushroomed. Right. And I started doing really well in No Limit without having any training or uh, any knowledge of the game whatsoever. And I made final tables at the WPT. I made, I won different events, whatever. Yeah, that's definitely an incredible thing, almost uncanny, because, again, obviously you've got, you know, the mathematical prowess, you've got your cash game skill and experience, but tournaments is kind of of a different animal, like... What sort of yeah. adjustments did you have to make? How did you learn? Did you study, or was it just it, you know? A... Yeah, I was just playing really tight, and uh, I was you know taking advantage of my image because people said I was super super tight. Like Gavin Smith and um, Joe Seabock, they had a radio show at that point, and yeah. they had this poker road. This whole yeah, yeah, poker road, and they were making jokes about how uh, how tight I played, and I think. Be- then uh, Gavin started calling me the chainsaw, like around 2006 or 2007, because I started traveling around playing the uh, the WPT events, and that what happened at Foxwoods, where I made the final table uh, at Foxwoods. Uh, you know, he 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 had that like he was saying I was cutting through the competition, right? And he called me the chainsaw. And then they they would make jokes about me on the show, and they would play the uh, the chainsaw like sound effect. <laughs> Him and Ali Najad and Joe Seabach, and that kind of took off. And then people would like people would stop me, and they would say, "Oh, you're Chainsaw from the Poker Road Radio." And then all of a sudden, that show like died out, but the Chainsaw thing stuck for sure. And you've definitely uh, embraced that moniker. Um, you know, we said you're your eighth place on the Hendon Mob currently, about 400 caches. Uh, number one right now is uh, Miami John Cernudo. He's got, uh, at the moment of recording, 563 results and counting. Uh, do you have a goal to, to try to make it to the top of that list? No, I haven't really even been playing much uh, poker tournaments lately. I just, uh, like, in the last two months, I played one tournament in Colorado 
I came to Cherokee just now because I really like Cherokee, just the whole atmosphere of it and the the, the loose playing style, whatever. Mm-hmm. But like, like when I played that one event at Cherokee, I mean in Colorado, the other people were playing entire series in like Florida and Tunica, and I I played one event during that. So people are like catching me and passing me. Like I think Ari Angle is going to wind up number one eventually. I don't know where he is on that list. But he he has the most diligent schedule of anyone, and uh, he he's eventually going to pass everybody. That's my that's my gut feeling on it. Like I believe he's I, top ten, and he actually was uh, I think episode number thirty six that we recorded right here on uh, on Cards Chat. So uh, I cut back on my schedule. It's just uh, the, the the travel grind and just the whole thing. And you really can't make that much money playing. Like uh, today was a four hundred dollar PLO event. If I win the whole event. It might pay like eight or nine thousand dollars. It's not going to affect you know anything. So it's just you kind of. And then the problem is if I want to play the bigger events in in Vegas, like there's a twenty five hundred one million, there's a ten thousand ten million, all these different things going on. Those players, there's there's no edge in that game. They're all top notch players. They all know all the charts. They all, like it's just a, it's a zero sum game. Like you're you're not going to unless you're like in the the top, really top echelon and put all that time in studying and all that. Those are not the events for me. I like like World Series type events where there's mixed games, where I think I have an edge, where, the, where there's like reasonable buy-ins, where you have a large group mix of people. But the, uh, these tor- it, the opposite is going on here. It's, it's a little bit too low for me. I thought the actual like thing that I'm really that I really like are like the sixteen hundred, seventeen hundred dollar, one million dollar guarantees. Mm-hmm. That's the reason I came here. Right. Because I get to play for a million dollar jack a million dollar tournament with uh, with you know an unbelievably soft field. Right. You wouldn't find that in Vegas or you wouldn't find that any you know anywhere. Like in Florida, when you go to Florida and play a thirty five hundred dollar WPT, it's a tough tournament. Yeah. Like from day one you have really, really skilled players. People say, oh, there's a lot of recreational players in Florida. Yeah, but there's a lot of people that are really, really good players in Florida, also in Vegas and California. So I like to like scope out these places like Colorado or Choctaw or Cherokee where I feel like I have a chance you know, to win something really big. And the buy-ins are reasonable. It's, it's very insightful because obviously part of, of being a good professional poker player is practicing good game selection. You know, obviously you pour through the tournament structures to make sure it's worthwhile. It, when you're when you're looking through your hand in mob, all of your caches, you know, obviously the, the overwhelming majority of them have come in the United States. But I noticed that you also recorded some caches at the UK, the Bahamas, Germany, uh, Australia and the Czech Republic. Now, the thing is, you know, because you're so particular, you know, you're known for, for playing in tournaments that offer good structures, good value. But to go abroad obviously entails a lot of extra cost. So I'm wondering, you know, what is it that, that you know, that made you decide, you know what, it's worth my while to travel overseas and play those specific events over the last 20 years? Oh, yeah. Well, um, the, the main focus I had, like... That started around 2010. In 2010, uh, the World Series was completely different than it is now. It wasn't all re-entry. It was one event a day and, uh, like, I don't know how many, 40 events or so, whatever it was. Anyway, I was in the running for uh, 
the most cashes in the World Series, which is a which is a prestigious thing. Like only one person every year can say I had the most cashes this year in the World Series. Mm -hmm. So I had an amazing World Series that year. I think I won like five hundred thousand dollars or something. And every day I would play a different event and I would cash next event. And I wasn't really, you know, how like today, like Sean Deeb and Jake Schwartz and Negrano and all these people, like they're they're running from event to event to try to get, you know, at 20 caches or whatever it was. But I wasn't even concerned with how many caches I had. I was just taking it day by day and I was playing whatever event suited me. And all of a sudden people were telling me, you know, you know, you're in the running for the most caches in 2010. So then, like, around the last week or so of the World Series, I really thought about it. Mm -hmm. And uh, it winds up I was tied with somebody with nine caches, which was a major thing back then. Sure. They said, well, you can go to WSOP Europe in, in, in London, and if you, if you get any caches there, they count. I said, fine, I'll do it. So I went there, and I, I had a, a one or two caches, whatever, and it winds up, if you look at the Hendemob, 2010, most number of caches – that's me. I, I won it. There you go. I got caches I needed in, in London. And then uh, I really liked it because no, the players didn't know me there. They had a whole different style. And uh, it was like I'm playing with a whole different group of people that, that, that don't know how to play against me. So years later, I would go to uh, uh, I went to uh, Germany. They had another one in Germany. Then they had the uh, WSOP Europe at Kings. Right. And Kings Casino... I fell in love with that place. They had the, uh, you can walk into, like, they have a whole free food area every day. The casino lays it out for you, like a, a complete buffet, like uh, all different types of food. And they had mixed events. They had no limit events. They had monster stack. They had the uh, WSOP main event. And I did that for, like, three or four years where uh, I was one of only, like, three or four people that would that would go there and stay there for 30 days straight. Hmm. Wow. And it, it's not, it's, it's a major commitment to go somewhere like that for 30 days straight. You got to pay for the airfare. The rooms are not cheap. They're not going to comp you rooms because it's, uh, you know, it's WSOP Europe. There's no, there's no comps. Of course. So I did that until this past year. I didn't go this year because I was worried about the, uh, the COVID restrictions. Sure. But yeah. I really, I really enjoyed that place because the, the, when I said earlier about, you know, I'm playing with people that don't know me, and I had a lot of success there. I went really deep in the, the main event. Mm -hmm. I made uh, there was a PLO event where I kept uh, advancing and advancing. It was televised, and I got to heads up, and I almost won a bracelet, but I came in second. I got cooler full house over full house <laughs> to lose the bracelet. But it was just uh, really intriguing to me. And then uh, a couple of years ago, I decided that I was going to add – um, WSO, not the WSOP, the Aussie Millions, because I heard so much about that. Right. So I started going there, and the problem with that is, it's it's such an it's such a commitment because you lose like two or three days just in the in the airline going back and forth. It's like fifteen or sixteen hours in flights each way. Sure. And then you're then the time zones are different, and uh, I did that two or three different times. And uh, I really enjoyed that one, but it's just the the travel got to me. And then uh, I've gone every I went every year until they stopped doing it. Right. And they didn't do it uh, the last two years because of the COVID. Sure. 
Well, you know, again, I, I obviously took a deep dive and, and looked at your hand in mob, and I did notice, you know, you get ribbed, uh, you know, about the winning and stuff, but you do have, you've got 15 outright tournament wins over your career, uh, including a WSOP circuit ring. But I, I guess, you know, it, it is fair to say you don't really have kind of like that signature moment, like a WPT title or WSOP bracelet, even though you've come very close on multiple occasions. Were you yeah, to... I'm, I'm, I, I just want to ask... Close in, uh, in bracelets uh all the way back to 2005 i've, I've been heads up for for wso free bracelets four four times right and lost all four right and, so, uh, so i want to ask you like one, if you were I, to win if you were to win one or a wpt title or something like major what would that mean to you i think the bracelet would mean more to me than the uh, wpt title because the wpt title is uh it just seems unattainable because uh you have to run so pure for four or five days, and those no limit events, and then at the end, you have to be willing to, uh, you know, to the, the math involved, you know, with, with uh, shoving and calling ranges and all that, and you have to fade everything. And my luck in those things at, at the final tables, I've been at four or five final tables at WPTs, but uh, my luck in those has just been horrendous. Like the the uh, the one at Foxwoods that uh, that we talked about earlier, mm -hmm. I got my money in with. Ace 10 against Ace 8, and I'm shaking my head. There's a famous video on YouTube about it. When all the, all the, the cards are turned over, Ace 10 against Ace 8, all in, pre-flop, and the guy hits like four, five, six, seven, runner, runner, runner hmm. to beat me. And nice. like I'm shaking, shaking my head. And that's happened to me so many different times. Like it happened to me uh, at another uh what at the Bellagio where in, I think, like 2007, where literally the, the all-in person won like seven or eight different times on ridiculous hands. Like, so, so, would you, so, would you, so would you say it's more of a relief than a sense of accomplishment almost? Because, I mean, you've obviously gotten, you know, almost all the way to the winner's circle. Yeah, I mean, I, the, the only thing, the only thing a major that I've ever won is there was a, you know how they do like a WSOP circuit championship at each stop? Yes. So there was one of those at Foxwoods, and I was there for all the other events, you know, the mixed events or whatever, and I played the main event, and I managed to get through 520-something people and win the Foxwoods circuit main event, which is, you know, they only have like 10 of those a year. Sure. So I won that uh and I think that was around 200,000. But uh, one of my second places, I won almost 300,000 against hmm. Frank Casella in the 10,000 stud eight. Right. So that's, that's my biggest recorded win money-wise. But my biggest actual win is the 200, around 200,000 in the, uh, the circuit championship at Foxwoods. Got it. Well, besides the the playing of tournaments, you know, there's uh, we we mentioned your name, the chainsaw. You told us how you got the nickname, and there's this kind of a known label that can get slapped on a tournament structure if it's chainsaw approved or not. What exactly does that mean? What what uh, what type of schedule is deserving of of uh, chainsaw approval? Well, uh, that used to be on the MSPT structure. Uh... They, they were like a fledgling uh, tournament series. They were they were getting numbers, but nothing spectacular. And one time he invited me to Baton Rouge to look at their, to play in one of their tournaments. So I went and I said, 
that I said, to be honest with you, this structure is, is messed up. You're missing levels here. And uh, I said, if you let me just write it, write out something, I could fix this for you. And it'll still finish. You have to finish in two days. And uh, he says, uh, his name is Brian Molesky. He runs the uh, MSPT. He sure. Said, he said, um, as long as it finishes in two days, uh, I'll, I'll be willing to try it out and we'll see how it goes. So uh, he put he put on his uh, website, we now have chainsaw approved structures. I redid the entire thing. <laughs> and their numbers went, they went off the charts. Like they used that structure. This is before Big Blind Annie started, but they used the chainsaw approved structure for probably four or five years. And that whole tour went from, you know, having very, very small fields, you know, to having thousand person fields. It was, people would stop me at every, like I was going to a lot of their stops and they would stop me and they would say, this is like the best structure I've ever played. And, <laughs> uh, this, you've really, you've done a phenomenal job. I come to these tournaments just because they're chainsaw approved. And basically what it means is that you have play from the beginning through the end. Uh -huh. like a lot of these tournaments at, at the end, you, uh, sometimes they'll have 20 big blind average. You can see that all the time. Right. So that means something wrong. Or they'll play too many levels in the beginning where they don't mean anything. And then by the time you get to like 500, 1,000, nobody has any chips. Mm -hmm. So it has something where you have play the entire tournament. That's chainsaw approved. Like, and you, you don't skip levels. You don't start too high, whatever. And the, the new WPT structure was was almost chainsaw approved, and then they decided they're going to like just remove like three levels, which is what happened recently. Got it. So okay, well, obviously, you know, the, having a good structure is very important to you, and I know obviously you don't just you know do so to be nitpicky, but you really believe that you know it's important to give players good value I mean, in the tournament. If you're gonna if you're gonna play in a tournament where at the end everybody only has twenty or twenty five blind average then it takes a lot of the play out of the tournament. Like right. the play should be consistent throughout the same with like the mixed events. If you, if you can find this thing from 2014 or 15, it says, uh, Alan Kessler fixes mixed event structures with Jack Effel and the, the structures were no good. I, uh, I was complaining like on Twitter or whatever. And he said, if you can fix it, we'll do it. And I fixed the entire, like, this This was unprecedented. They changed all the mixed event structures midway through the World Series. It had never happened before. Like, usually they'll say, well, these are the structures. You have to live with it or die with it. And uh, I came up with something, and they, they went with it, and everybody liked it. That's and good stuff. Like Jack Apple, who's a very tough person to deal with sometimes, he said, Alan, thank you. Like, this is this is amazing. And, and then a couple of years after that, uh, they went back to having bad again, but then this last year was really good. Like this, this one we just had in November, excellent structures again. They fixed it again. And I said, you know, Jack, I have a few little minor tweaks I'd like to make to these structures. And he said, well, we're not going to change it for this, this one, but for the summer, tell me what you want and we'll try and do it. And he's already assured me that the stuff I asked for, uh, I asked for double levels near, near the end of the day instead of earlier in the day, because at the end of the day, there wasn't enough play. And he said, you know what, you're right, we're going to try that. So, nice. I mean, people might think that, like, that, that, that people, that, that the tournament directors don't listen to what I say, but in actuality, there are 
a huge number of these tournament people were, I've been at a tournament, I made suggestions, and like at the Borgata, I said something to Tab one day, and he said, he changed it right then as we were playing. Hmm. Like he added, like we're on day two of a mixed tournament. I said, you know, we're skipping levels on day two of a mixed tournament. And he said, you know what, you're right. And he just, he went in and did something to the clock and he fixed it. Well, that's really so, great because I mean, it's obviously, it's very clear that, you know, it's, it's not coming from a, a place of negative criticism, but more constructive. Uh, and, and it's great to hear to, that they listen yeah, to I mean, it and, and make the adjustments. But, uh, there's been instances all over the country. There's only one particular tournament director who you probably know, but no matter what I say, uh, it, it, it's not right. Like I've had multiple disagreements with them and, uh, I have no, there's nothing I can do to change their mind. So, and, I, and I think but, that's okay. You know, different strokes for different folks and no yeah, need to I, get into that. Other than, other than that person, uh, anywhere I go, like if I make a suggestion, they'll say, you know, we'll, we'll try and get that done. Like even in Florida where they've, you know, they've run really successful tournaments. I, I said, you know, there's something with these mixed tournaments that are, there, there was something wrong with it. And I, I went to the, uh, to the top people in Florida and they said, you know what, we're going to fix this for next time. And they, they wound up fixing it. Well, it's always, so, it's always really nice to hear that, uh, you know, that the folks running the tournaments, you know, don't just have the blinders on and they're always receptive and want to do right. the best for players. So that's a very good I'm thing. It's globally, globally, I've had no issues with this, except for there's a, a one or two people that no matter what you say to them, the, this is the right way to do it. Like we, we've been doing it this way. And that's their that's their answer. We've always done it this way, and we haven't had any complaints. Well, let's but let's let's ask about that. Actually, I, I believe some are like sheep, like they don't care what's offered; they just want to play. Well, but that doesn't it's right. You know what I'm saying? It could still be a bad structure, even though the the people are coming out in droves to play because there is nothing else to play. I understand. I understand. Play like a Sunday tournament or whatever. I understand. I, I kind of want to change gears, but kind of use that same line of thought. You know, you said, you know, doing things the way you always did. You know, obviously you've been around poker for so long as a player and you've seen, you know, the fact is the level of play has just gotten better across the board. You mentioned it earlier that, you know, folks just they know all the charts and all that sort of thing. Do you study or, or like what do you do specifically to try and improve your game and, and you know, I guess, keep up with, you know, all the, all the geniuses who are just, you know, studying in the lab all the time? Well, I don't, I don't actually do, do this lab stuff, but I have studied the charts, like when to shove, when to, you know, when to three bet, those kind of things. Like there's certain, there's certain tipping points in tournaments. Like if you have 15 blinds, you shove these hands in these positions. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've studied those charts and that really helped me a lot because a lot of times I get short and uh, you just have to go with certain hands. It's, it's been mathematically proven. Even if you bust, there's a mathematical certainty that if you have, if you have like nine, eight suited on the button with X number of blinds, you shove no matter what. Right. So those type of things uh, I found very, very useful. And also just watching a lot of these high roller tournaments and mm-hmm. there's so much Poker Go is is unbelievable the amount of content they have, and you can watch tournaments literally twenty four hours a day and never run out. Right. <laughs> so I watch a lot of a lot of the live tournaments and how people are playing, and you just you grasp onto things. Like uh, I told Carrie, I said, Carrie, what you're doing for poker is just amazing. I said, nobody's ever offered content like this where you can basically watch high rollers play 
they have series after series at the ARIA, and they have, they're showing like final tables of all the different mixed events, the World Series, and all the different, you know, every day they had two or three different events going at the World Series where they're showing live streams of people playing for, for life-changing money. I said, you know, this is amazing. And, you know, he just gets snubbed by the whole poker industry, never gets any, uh, Commendation or anything. Well, I, I think we we try, but he, he kind of prefers to keep it a little bit on the down low. <laughs> but uh, he definitely no, does I mean, some amazing stuff. Like they're they're running poker awards last week, and like industry person of the year, I would put him in the in in the running automatically. I mean, for the amount of content that he put out last year and growing the game and like offering all these different events, you know, that people can watch. Yep. And well, so, I, I would. He would have been a no-brainer for me to put in that group, well, like industry per, person of the year. And perhaps uh, I, I, an award is uh, is certainly uh, in in his future. Um, do, do you do any? Basically, that's what I do. I mean, I don't really study like uh, Sims and all this other stuff okay. that people talk about. Okay. A lot of it is just people people you know playing the people that are at the table, and I have such an image that I can exploit that. Mm-hmm. And none of that stuff is even on any chart. It's just something you feel in your in your mind, like. You know, if I raise here, they're going to fold because I have such a tight image, or or I or I should fold here because they're raising me, and I have such a tight image. Why are they raising me when I when I obviously have something here? You know what I'm saying? I do. So it's a little bit different for me than most other people. I understand. I have such an image, and I have such a history that people play differently against me. So like, you can't just use it like a standard chart or, or whatever. Right. And when, when you talk when you talk about image, obviously there's, you know, people who've met you, know you in person, play against you at the table. And there's also the image that we kind of see virtually, so to speak, on social media. You know, we know you're, you're very active in the Twitter community on numerous poker groups on Facebook. But I, I noticed you also have an Instagram page and I'm kind of wondering, you know, so who, who would you say is, is your audience there? What do you enjoy about Instagram? Instagram, I basically just, like, post pictures of different hands and things. I really, uh, I'm not really too much into that Instagram, I don't, uh, but when I do post something, it seems like people like it. Like, I post, like, uh, when I had Aces Against Aces at the, um, where was that, oh, Thunder Valley, where I'm, I'm basically one of the chip leaders in the tournament, and the only other person that has... The chips equal to me at the table has aces, and it runs out four to a flush. I took pictures of that hand, and that got a lot of response on Instagram. But like, I like I might go a month without posting anything on Instagram. Mm-hmm. So it's just if something if there's like something or if I have a big slot win or something, I sometimes take a picture of it, sure. post it on Instagram. Sure, but. I'm not really that big into it. So okay, yeah, just more out of curiosity. I noticed it, so I, I wanted to ask. You know, it's, it's um, you know, one other thing I wanted to ask you, you know, you, you said, you know, you've always played on your own dime, you know, never taken from people. But but it's, of course, known, you know, when you play poker professionally and it's the, the saying is it's a tough way to make an easy living, you know, and you've had plenty of highlights, you know, plenty of great memories to, to reflect on. Have you ever had, you know, any kind of like massive downswings where you're like, Man, I just maybe I should just you know hang it up. Maybe I should just I don't know drop down. I don't know what to do with myself. Has that ever happened to you? Or are you just kind of like more or less smooth sailing? No, I've never had that happen because what happens is I do a lot of gambling on the side, and there's been some years where I win like three hundred or four hundred thousand in cashes and in, in, in uh, poker, and I lose money gambling. But other years where I've done bad in gambling, I mean in poker, I've done really well in gambling. Mm-hmm. So 
it just seems like those two things offset. Plus, I sell a lot of action on stake kings, so that reduces my my variance a lot. Like, I don't if I win something big on stake kings and I have to pay out investors, it doesn't bother me because I get to play in the event. Like, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't normally play like uh, six different 10k mixed events uh-huh. unless I sell some action. So I, you know, I sell action at almost almost no markup, like 1.05 or something, mm-hmm. just so I can play all the events. Great. So I limit I limit my liability. I have I play the events I like, which are not that big a buy-in on my own, and then like in big series like the World Series or like 3,500 WPTs or whatever, I'll sell action online, even though I can more than afford to, to for years to play all these events. Mm-hmm. I, I just don't like to have the variance. Sure. Well, that's good. Never, it, never had a, uh, a thing where I say, well, I'm going to be broke or whatever. I've always had plenty of money to do whatever I wanted to travel wherever I want to go. That's a, that's an amazing thing. I mean, obviously, no, you know, you've lived your life. You know that you know that that's sort of the way it's been. But that's very atypical from you know what we hear of so many professional poker players. And I think uh, perhaps uh, you know to a degree that's an example at least to strive for and chase that stability. I know several players that have, that have had like million dollar uh, years or million dollar wins, and like they're asking me to borrow money like a year later or something. And I can't figure it out. Hmm. I don't want to name any names, but sure. like. But these people all have leaks. You know what I'm saying? Like they play, they play in the wrong cash games that they shouldn't be playing in, or they, or they play, uh, you know, high limit table games where they have, you know, huge swings for no reason, or mm-hmm. they, they gamble on sports. Sports is a big one, and I, I can't remember the last sports bet I ever made. So, mm. but, but these people all have leaks, or they drink a lot and they just. Uh, they don't know what happened with their money. Like they will just gamble wildly. So, anyway, I don't have any leaks. I play, I play, you know, very, very good selection of games. Mm-hmm. If I do play cash, it's a mixed game that I like. It's not what I call carnival games where sure. you're just playing like uh, double board this or drama, with all these crazy, I'll play like a uh, stud eight cash game or Omaha eight or a mixed limit mm-hmm. mixed game. Okay. But, I'm also very I'm very selective, so okay. I only go that I like. Well, how, how how about away from the felt, Alan? What do you do for fun? Uh, basically, I'm in the casino every day. So that's, and you that's and you in, why do you enjoy it? I just enjoy the whole aspect of it. Going in the casino, you know, walking around, deciding what to play, deciding you know, it's hard to explain, but to, you know, me seeing people that I know. So that's why I only go places where they have a casino. Like if they Jacksonville Best Bet, if, no matter what series they ever run, there's I have no interest in going there to play it because there's nothing I can do there. I'm going to go there. I'm going to play the tournament. If I bust, I have nothing to do there. Mm. So they don't. They're not going to have a mixed cash game for me. They're not going to. They're, I have to pay for a hotel. I have to pay for my food. But if I go to like Choctaw or somewhere, if I bust a tournament, I can go in the casino. I can play slots. I can eat food. I can get comped. I can, you know, whatever. Nice. If they have mixed cash games that I like. It's a completely different thing. So, if Choctaw runs an event, I make a special effort to go to that. Same with Hard Rock Hollywood. I love to go there because if I bust, they have cash games that I like. They have slots that I like. They have a beautiful hotel. They have beautiful rooms. They have 
all kind of food that I like. So nice. I only go places where I feel comfortable. And how about in Las Vegas? What are your favorite places to play? Obviously, everywhere there's a casino. So Yeah, I, I basically avoid the Strip at all costs. Uh, I don't really play on the Strip much. I, I like the M Resort because it's by my house. Uh, I actually like playing at the Venetian, even uh, because if I bust, they have such a huge selection of machines there. And uh, they have really good food there. Uh, the wind, not so much because the food is a little bit crazier there than it's like not my speed. But the, uh, the Venetian, I really like their whole layout, like the food. They have really good tournaments. They have a lot of mixed game tournaments and it's easy parking in and out. It's just the perfect scenario on the strip. Other than that, I don't think I've played at an event at the Bellagio or Aria. I, I think I played one event at Aria in the last five years. Wow. I can't remember the last event I played at the Bellagio hmm. because the the last time I played at the Bellagio was a 10K five diamond and I said I would never go back. So hmm. interesting. Wow. Okay. Well, I thought before we move it was, in, it was utter chaos there. There was like a six hour wait to get in the game <laughs> and you were afraid like people, uh, it was, people were crammed in. It was so I, I understand they fixed all that, but I haven't been back. So, right. but I basically, there's very few places that I play. Like, I play where I'm comfortable. Got it. I can't even describe it. Got it. Well, before we move into the uh, community questions, I've just got one final question for you of my own. Uh, and I guess I kind of have to borrow it uh, from Daniel Negrano. He always seems to love asking you on his vlogs. What's bothering you today, Alan? Oh, uh, well, <laughs> I'm, the, I've, I've been called down super light the last three days in a row at this Cherokee thing. And I've managed to lose all three times. Like uh, today, it's uh, Potlum in Omaha. There's some limps for 600, and I have aces. They're not terrific aces, but I need to I need to narrow the field. Right. So I I'm in the small blind, so I make it 3,000 with aces. And the guy in the big blind has 600 dollars invested, and he's got only around 12,000 in chips. So to put in 3,000 is a big deal for him. And he's supposed to fold, right? Right. Especially if he has four, seven, eight, nine rainbow in PLO. It's like a really, really bad hand. So anyway, he calls. And then what happens is because he calls, it starts a string because the other people are realizing they're getting a much better price. So then the next guy calls and mm. the next guy calls. And uh, it winds up that the four, seven, eight, nine wins the pot <laughs> and busts it. That that's PLO for you. <laughs> right yeah, so that that was, but I mean this this happened to me yesterday where a guy opens, and uh, he opens for twenty five hundred, and I shove for sixteen thousand, and like he's supposed to call especially against me with a really really tight range, and he calls with it with a, like a, a low to middle pair, <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, how is this even possible? Like. Especially against me, like I've, I've been sitting there for hours. I haven't made one out of line play, and this guy just decides to put in like three quarters of his chips with a low to low to, low to mid pair. I don't want to say the exact hand. Got to say, and it winds up I have I have ace king of hearts, and I flopped pretty good, but I didn't make a pair, and he wins. I got to say, I feel I, like I've been in that spot, and I'm sure uh, many of our listeners uh, can empathize. No, it's, just, <laughs> it's weird because I build up this image over years and years. And people know that I have it. And like, if you look at the comments on Twitter, 
they say that people just call because they know I'm going to run bad and I'm going to lose. And it's happened to me <laughs> for my whole career. Like yeah. I'll have the, I've, you know, I've, I've gotten aces cracked so many times in big spots. Like the last time I was here in Cherokee in the main event, uh, I, I had aces and the nut flush draw hmm. and the guy hit, makes a set. Right. So, so yeah, well, like, like we talk about, you know, the, the folks who know you. And, and like I said, you know, we've got a, a second segment of the show where we turn to our cards chat community uh, to see what questions they specifically submitted that they wanted to ask you. Uh, uh, folks, we do have a dedicated thread on the cards chat forums for this. So as we announce who our future guests will be, please be sure to send in your questions. And Alan, the, the first one's come. We'll try to get through as many as we can. And again, thank you so much for your time. I'll uh, answer all the questions. I have, I'm, I have nothing to do tonight. So. Okay, well, I appreciate it. So, okay, so Chica Bonita, thank you very much. Uh, Chica Bonita wants to know, uh, says, Alan, you're known as a versatile player. Which variant of poker is your favorite? Oh, okay. Uh, if I had to answer that question, it would be like a... Um, a mixed format, and it would either be um, Omaha 8 or Stud 8, and triple draw limit, very close second. Actually, if, if those three are in a combination in a cash game, I'll almost always sit down after I scope the table out to see who's playing. But basically, those games don't even exist in cash games anymore. They're all basically these carnival games. But those three games in particular, I really like the nuances of those three games, especially Stud 8 or better, because if if, if you're playing no limit hold'em, anybody can beat you with any two cards. But if, if you're playing stud eight or better, and you're playing it well against people that are not playing it well, your edge is bigger in that game than almost any other game. So I, I tend to lean toward that game or Omaha eight. And I also like the nuances of stud eight, like trying to make somebody break their hand when you're either behind or ahead or staying pat when you have, a, have the nuts and not raising, and then they stay pat after you or, behind, or before you or whatever. And there's just different nuances to each game. And uh, those three games in particular are my favorite, but I'd say study overall is my favorite game. Nice. Okay, cool. Um, and the second question from Achika Bonita, uh, many people praise your talent for phenomenal memory and ability in mathematics. Um, do you consider yourself especially gifted in these areas? And to what degree has this helped you in poker? She wants to know. Uh, I've always been good at math. Like, uh, like you can study uh, math applies to like video poker. It applies to regular poker. It, you know, you can basically figure out like if I call in this spot, even if I hit my card, am I getting the right pot odds? Like it's, it, it just comes in your head automatically, but uh, you have to be mathematically inclined to understand that. Like there are certain people where they're just saying, well, I have a straight draw, I have to call. But you have to think about it. Uh, what are my odds of hitting the card? Like are, are all my straight cards live or does any of them make a flush? It's, uh, if, even if I make the can, are there other cards on the river that can change the, the, uh, the nuts or whatever? So it definitely pays to be mathematically inclined. Uh, as far as poker is concerned, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I hope that answers the question, but I think it it's does. something that it's something that you have to have innate in your mind. Like you have to, uh, there's basically different formulas on the flop turn and river where you can figure out your exact pot odds of hitting something. So like if you have a set 
usually have 10 outs on the river to improve or whatever. Mm-hmm. If somebody already has a flush. Sure. Okay. Like that. Um, Crystals has some questions for you, Alan. Uh, Crystals says you are ranked in the top 10 for all-time caches, according to the GPI. What has enabled you to be so successful at tournament poker over your career? Uh, well, I had a – before, like, the last two or three years or so, I had a really good uh, work ethic where I would – basically, I would play one series, then I would look on the, on the cardplayer.com, and I would pick out the next series. And I basically went week to week to week to week for 52 weeks playing whatever series was offered. Hmm. And I had that work ethic for probably uh, from like 2005 to like 2017 or 18 or whatever. Hmm. So you can rack up a lot of caches that way because you're playing uh, hundreds of events. And if you cash in one out of five or one, I cash more than most people. But if you cash in one out of five of hundreds of events, you're going to cash you know, 30 or 40 or 50 times in one year. Yep. So, and over multiple years, it just builds up and builds up. So I, that's how I did it. There you go. Uh, next, next question from Crystals is, what is something that most poker fans don't know about you? Uh, they don't know that um, I have a, a talent where I can, if somebody gives me a phone number, I can tell them what word it spells, but it has to be a real word, obviously. And I've done this at multiple poker tables, and people have been very impressed by it. For example, like if you said uh, 2274, that's the numbers on the phone. Right. I would tell you it's spelled cash. <laughs> that's a very... But it has to be a real word, obviously. Like some people, they'll give me numbers that don't spell anything, and then like... It defeats the whole purpose of the of the, the thing. But so I, I could just pick four random numbers and, and you'd give me a word? Alan, by working with my sister, trying to find the numbers that spell different words, uh-huh. and it became like almost a language for me. So like people say, well, how do you do it? I can't explain how I do it, but it's just something that I can look at it. And not every time, but I'd say like 90% of the time, if somebody gives me the numbers that spell a word, I can tell them the word, and they're just... People are saying you could go on the road with this and go to a bar and make <laughs> make money on this. That's like, a really cool trick. Nobody, nobody believes it. Like, and they'll give me like sometimes they'll give me like an eight or ten letter word, and I get it. Amazing. So like, I was I was at a um, I was at the Players Club signing up in a casino in, in Blackhawk, and somehow that came up in conversation with the guy that was signing me up, and he said, "Oh, that's nothing. Anybody can do that." He said, "I'm going to I'm going to have my son do it." He said, he said, I'm not that inclined, but I'll have my son do it, and uh, you'll see that it's not that big of a deal. Anyway, so I'm playing, and I go back to the same guy to cash out my ticket, and he said, my son tried it, and it's impossible. Because <laughs> I, I, I had done like four or five in a row with this guy, right. and he couldn't believe it. And he said, my son tried it, and he's, he's really, really smart, and he couldn't do it. So that's... Like, nobody knows, I'd say 99% of the people that know me don't know I can do this. That is a fantastic, very cool talent. Uh, last one from Crystals. Uh, what is one... Well, if, you want to, if you want to try one right now, you can look at your phone. Yeah. And you think of a word and tell me the numbers on the phone that match the word. Like, if it was cash, it would be 2274. Okay. So, uh, oh, man. I'm putting myself on the spot, but I'm, I might not get it. But do, like, five letters or so. Any word, you're saying. Any word, but tell me the numbers on the phone that match the word. Okay. Uh, six, 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 three, nine. 
money. That's incredible. See, people wow. don't believe it. Like, that was really fast. People don't believe <laughs> that I can do it, but it's just like this innate talent that I have. Very so, cool. <laughs> okay. Um, one more from Crystals. What is one thing that you wish was different about poker? You're only allowed to say one thing. One thing? Yeah. Uh, I wish um, when when you go to an event, instead of it being like at most events, when you go, it's going to be all no limit and one PLO event. I wish it would go back to like 2004 Bellagio, where you could where you would go and every day there would be like a no limit event, but there would be some other event like a horse mm. or a stud or a Omaha eight and. If, if it was like that, I would I would go I would go all out to play you know to like my old schedule like I would be going everywhere. Nice. Because the the places to do that there's only a couple places to do that the uh, Hard Rock and Hollywood they've gone to that format a little bit but um, where they'll offer a couple but the problem is you to commit to that you have to go for too many days because they're spread out too far. Mm. The Commerce used to have that. But the uh, they kind of backed away from that, and basically, there there's nothing like that any like during the year anywhere where you every day instead of just having no limit, there's no limit at and other than the World Series obviously, right, there's right. no limit, and there's there's another some other event hmm. like it doesn't everywhere you go doesn't have to just be no limit after no limit after no limit, like if you look at like a Venetian schedule, they might have one or two mixed games, and every day it's they call it. A, monster stack or a gigantic stack or ultimate stack. it's the same tournament over and over again it's just different numbers of chips right now I'm, I'm obviously a big fan of uh, mixed games as well uh, i certainly second your opinion i'd love to see it but fact is no limit definitely uh, packs in the seats and that's what the the rooms are after so um next one acid burn fx uh, got some interesting questions for you uh, alan uh, wants to know um what is your favorite possession and why Possession? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I don't really have any. I, I have three of the circuit rings, but uh, they're not really. They don't really mean that much to me. So, um, I don't know. That's a tough one. I have to think about that. Okay, we'll give you a time bank chip. It's good. Maybe we'll circle back. Um, next question from Acid Burn. What decision would you say drastically changed your life? Oh, that's an easy one. It was uh, when I, the decision when I went to uh, Las Vegas for the first time and I saw, like, it, it just hit me, like, this is, this is for me. Like, I went there on a, on, a, on a trip that I won, like a Super Bowl trip from Atlantic City, and it was like a revelation. Like, I have to come here more often. I have to, I have to, uh, this, is, this is for me. And uh, eventually I wound up moving there. That was another big decision. But just the revelation of that I, I don't have to be in, like, cold Pennsylvania, all, you know, for the rest of my life. I can, I can go travel. I can, do, uh, I can go to Las Vegas. I can go other places. That was, that was the biggest thing for me in my life. Nice. Okay, cool. Uh, we've got uh, time for two more questions here, two more question I, askers. Five more questions. I, I'll stay on because I like these questions. Oh, that's good. I'm glad you like it. Okay. Um, oh, you know, so we'll do one more from Acid Burn FX. Uh, what mystery would you like to see solved in your lifetime? 
The mystery? Yep. Um, I don't know. That's a, that's a weird question. Uh, I don't, I'm, I'm not even <laughs> sure what they're after there. there. I'll tell you one thing. There's certain players to me that are a complete mystery. Like, I've played with them on countless occasions, and I can't figure out, like, how they are, how, like, what are they doing? Like, it happens, like, every day. That's my main mystery, like, just the way certain people play and people that you've seen for, like, 10, 15 years that are still doing this weird stuff that makes, like, almost no sense. And hmm. you think there's, like, a learning curve, right? Right. Like, I'll give you an example. I have this, um, I have this uh, mixed, mixed club online where I, uh, people can play mixed tournaments. For, we play from $100 to $200 mixed tournaments, $100 to $200 person mixed tournaments. It's been running about three years. We have, uh, say, 20 to 30 people play a night on different tournaments online. If anybody wants to find out about that, they can message me on Twitter or Facebook. But anyway, there's people that have played since the beginning, right? Mm -hmm. And it's involving to me. They've been playing every day in our mixed tournaments. We run three tournaments a day, different games. Like mm -hmm. we might have study, we might have a deuce, we might have an uh, eight-game mix one day, whatever. And they've been playing for three years, right? Every day with a, you know, a, a nice group of people. And there's no learning curve. That's like boggles my mind how is that even possible that's the mystery to me in my life like how do like i don't understand like it, it's also like in it, it applies to cash games and poker right there's people that i played like 2040 with in the like the 80s or 90s and then you know i graduated to like higher games like 5100 8160 100 200 and those same people are not not only didn't they move up they're playing 816 at the Orleans mm. with the highest, this ridiculous rate. And I'm saying, how, how did this person for the last 20 or 30 years never get past eight and $16 Omaha eight? Like, I, like it's a, it's a mystery to me. Like hmm. I, I can't even figure it out. <laughs> Interesting. Wow. Okay. Well, I'll throw in one of my own here. Cause I forgot to ask this something. We always ask everyone on the podcast, who are the friendliest players you've ever competed against? Friendly players? Yeah. Um, I don't know. There's quite a few. There's this um, this lady, Lisa Kaminsky, on my on my Facebook. Mm -hmm. Every time I come to Cherokee, she brings me, like, she, she brought me a, she made a custom-made chainsaw T-shirt for me one time. Oh. She brings donuts. Uh, her name is Lisa Kaminsky on, on Twitter. Uh, there's there's several others. Uh, I'm trying to think of something, somebody something that someone nice, you know, done nice for me. Uh, uh, ben Irwin has been very nice to me. He's a, uh, he's not a player. He's a tournament director at Thunder Valley, but you walk in and like, he'll take you, he'll, he'll take players out to dinner at wow. the steakhouse. And it's just, you know, uh, people, you know, people that respect you or that, that are nice to you. But then there's also people that are just rude and mean to you, which I, I come into that, into, uh, those type of people a lot. Mm. Like they'll say, you still in the, how are you still playing as bad as you play? Like you're so easy to play against and that. And then like, I'll look up their hand mob and they have like six caches in their lifetime for, <laughs> for nothing. Yeah. Just want to be mean to somebody. Yeah. Okay. So it's, there's both extremes actually. I hear you. All right. We got uh, two more here on the list. Uh, Bella Donna 
05. Thank you for submitting this question. Uh, I think I know what it references, and you know, I look, I can't put words in their mouth, but uh, Belladonna wants to know, Alan, just how many sodas have you shared with Todd Brunson? Oh, that's a that's a pretty funny story, actually. <laughs> so he had just bought the um, the Cafe Roma, Roma Deli, whatever you want to call it, in uh, Spring Mountain. Mm-hmm. It's actually a really excellent restaurant. They have uh, they have really good Italian food, and they have um, people can go there. After, actually, it's a little bit further from the Strip. It wouldn't be possible anymore, but from the Rio, it was, it was pretty convenient. You could just drive down to Spring Mountain, make a left, and you're there. Anyway, so he had a grand opening, and they were doing a promotion where they were doing like a drawing and having uh, – he, like he invited all his friends to come down to the grand opening. So we, we get there, and – they bring out all these different plates of all the different foods. And, I, you know, I, I like took some ravioli, whatever, you know, just there was like shareable plates of, sure. of all the different Italian food. So the waiter comes around and he asks people what they want to drink. Right. I say, I'll have a Diet Coke. And then he walks around and he takes all the orders. Right. So finally, they do this drawing. There's like an online drawing for um, I don't know what they were giving away, like uh, maybe meals at the restaurant or whatever. And finally, the thing's over. So people, everybody gets up to leave, and I thank Todd and, and uh, Max for it. Max Pescatore was his partner at that point in it, but I'm not not sure if, they, if he's still involved in it. Anyway, uh, I'm walking out the door, and the waiter almost tackles me as I'm walking out the door. I don't, I don't think Todd even knew about this. It's really weird, right? And I said, what's wrong? And he says, you owe for the Diet Coke. <laughs> I said, are you serious? This is a party. Everybody was invited to come here. This is the grand opening party. Like, you can't charge people for drinks. <laughs> he said, well, the food, he says, the food was free. The drinks are, uh, the drinks you have to pay for. And I, I, I point to Todd and I said, uh, make him, he'll pay for the drink. And I, I walked out without paying. <laughs> now, if you go there, you can find this picture online. There's a picture of me on the, on the wall. And it says wanted soda thief, and Amazing. I have my picture. Amazing! That is a funny, that's a very funny story. Thank you for sharing it. Um, and before we wrap up, one final question from uh, Louvart. Lavart, thank you very much for sending this one in. A strategy question, Alan. Uh, Lavart wants to know what are your three top tips for stud games, especially stud high and stud high low. All right, stud high and stud high low are completely different games. If, uh, if you want strategy, like in a stud high game, uh, there's a couple different strategies you want to use. Like if you're, if you're the last, if you're near the end of the circle, like the betting goes around in a circle. So if you're near the end of the circle and you have the highest card on the board, you should almost always raise because first of all, that card, if you do have a pair, you have the highest pair, unless somebody has a hidden pair of aces or something. And second of all, the, the, uh, the equity of everybody folding is such a big deal because there's eight Andes in the pot and you only have to get through two or three more people and you often have the highest hand, just king high might be the highest hand anyway. So you should always, always, always raise in that spot. And if you're the second or last, if you're the last person before the bring in, in stud high in particular, you should always raise because that means your card is higher than the bring in person's card and you're getting like eight or nine to one on your money. It's like a ridiculous odds on your money, just raising. 
Like I've seen people fold to the bring in a stud, which is horrendous. You should never, ever do that. And if you're in early position in a stud high, you want to play uh, pairs. You want to play hidden pairs, which is, which is way better than a, like if you have an eight, eight king is much worse than having king, eight, eight. Because, I mean, eight, the, if you have an eight showing with eight king in the hole, right, right. it's much worse than playing a king up with two eights in the hole. Because sure. the king up with two eights in the hole, you can represent kings, you can represent Broadway, you can represent a lot of hands. But the other way, you're basically saying I have a pair of eights. Right. So you want to play pairs, you want to play three cards to a flush, you want to play any three Broadway cards. This is stud high. Mm-hmm. Now, when you're flipping the stud high low, uh, a lot of people make this mistake in stud high low is they'll, they'll play kings, especially with a king up. And kings are a disaster hand in stud high low because what happens is people have great to have an ace in their hand, like they have ace three six or ace three four or ace whatever going for a low. And if they make an if they have an ace on board at some point in the hand, you never know if they paired that ace. Or if they made a low, but either way, you're in big trouble because right. if they made a low, they're free rolling you with 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 a low into a straight, and if they made aces, they've already got you beat high, and they're free rolling with a low draw. So kings are just a complete disaster in in study eight or better. If you can play heads up against somebody, and you can you can you know control the pot, it's fine. But multi way pot, you're you're just going to get outdrawn by somebody with a straight. Or with a low, or so in that game you want to play. Uh, you want to play three cards to low straights, three cards to low flush with the straight, ace xx with with two low cards. But you don't want to play like hands like three seven eight that right. can't make a straight and that are going to make a bad low because all that hand is do, going to do is get you in trouble. Someone's going to make a better low. Mm. Someone's going to make a straight. Someone's going to make aces up or whatever and you have you you're in a bad spot the entire hand yep so those are my examples for study and study of what you should be playing excellent tips and folks you know besides uh, everything else you've learned if you want to learn specific strategy definitely listen to the last few minutes one more time those are some great tips not that you need me to confirm it but uh you know i, I enjoy a good stud game stud high low and definitely some if, great if some look, great stuff if you look there. at the um at the world series people that have cashed in the world series there are maybe maybe ten or less people that have cashed in every format of the of the World Series, and I'm one of those people. Like I've cashed in every format except for uh, single draw deuce. Hmm. I've cashed in every other format, like limit hold'em, horse, eight game mix, deuce, any game you can name. I've cashed. So it's really really hard to do that. You have to really understand all the games, and there's very very like. I challenge people to, to come up with somebody that has cashed in more different variants, and uh, it's very, very difficult to find it. Like, obviously, Phil Helmuth has probably cashed in all the variants, or Gang Negrano, or somebody like that. But it's very hard to find people that have cashed in every single variant. Like, well, so your, your you record. You really have to know all the games. For sure. Your record certainly speaks for itself. And I guess that's why everyone sent in so many questions for you. Know, a lot of good questions to ask you. And uh, thanks you don't to. Do you have any more questions to ask uh, from, the, uh, from, the, from the forum? That's what we got. Let me just check one more time to see. 
Uh, no, we, I think that's what we got. We had about, you know, 10, 15 questions in there. So, uh, yeah, well, thank you to everyone who did send in those questions for Alan Kessler. And, of course, uh, a friendly reminder out there to our Cards Chat community. We'd love to see you submit your questions for our future podcast guests in the dedicated thread. Uh, please be sure, folks, to give us a good review on iTunes and spread the word via your social media channels if you liked the show. Alan, before we let you go, anything else you'd like to share with our audience? Oh, I have a special offer for anybody to... You know, uh, Carrie's done an amazing job with uh, Poker Go, with all that amazing content. And he's going to have, you know, coming up at the World Series, he's going to have um, all the different final tables again, just like last year. There's also a super high roller bowl coming up. If anybody wants to subscribe to Poker Go and get the lowest possible price, which is what I negotiated with him, all you have to do is type in chain, the word chainsaw in the, uh, in the offer code box. And it'll give you the lowest possible price that you can get for Poker Go. Nice. Well, you heard it here first. Great money-saving tips. Uh, Alan Kessler, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, everyone out there, thank you so much for tuning in once again to another episode of Cards Chat. I'm Robbie Straczynski. You can follow me on Twitter at Card Player Life. I wish you all a wonderful day. Cards Chat, the friendliest poker podcast in town from the world's number one poker community. 